I know y'all are a little surprised by that. It's me. It's Shane Seegers. I'm not John Schmidt. He's a little bit shorter than I am, but I'm glad that I can be here today with y'all. John is in uh, at our location in Wetumpka preaching there. And so he asked me if I uh, preached this week. And, you know, I went home and told my wife, Janelle, I was like, hey, Janelle, I'm getting to preach in marriage. Do you want to get up on stage with me like Debbie does with John? And she left me. <laughs> so I'm preaching this as a single person to you today. No, actually, there's great news why she left. If you look to the screen, hey, I'm a granddaddy again. Yeah, I have a three-year-old granddaughter named Kinsley, and now I have a grandson named Brooks, and so they're in Springfield, Missouri, my son and his wife, and uh, so Janelle obviously thought that was a better place to be. I'll be there for spring break. Don't worry, I'm going to get my baby fixed, but uh, I'm just so glad that I can be here with y'all today. So let's, let's open up with a word of prayer and ask God to speak to us. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be together, God, to hear from your word, to sit in your presence, to allow you to minister to us, to meet our deepest needs. Lord, I'm just so thankful for the things that you tell us, that we have everything we need for life and godliness, that you don't leave us, don't forsake us. You're with us through each and everything that we encounter. And Lord, um, that's true in marriage as well. And God, I'm just so thankful that you are the third party in our marriage that makes our marriages strong. So God, would you speak to us today? Would you uh, reveal your will and your ways and your word to us so that we might experience more of you? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very simple. Today I'm going to talk about something because I'm a simple kind of person. You know, if we, if we believe something rightly, it will affect our attitude and if it affects our attitude, it'll affect what we do. Do y'all believe in that? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Very simple. We're going to talk about this, that we need to put each other first. And, and just, I'm going to give you a map of where I'm going. Here's, here's what we need to believe and what we need to know. That when God puts two people together in marriage, they become one. They become one. And if you understand that it's not really just two of you together, but you're one it will affect your attitude towards each other. Because it's not a hard thing for you to want to put yourself first, is it? But if you really begin to understand that you are one, then you can begin to willingly want to put your spouse first. This is that word submission. Notice how John leaves when we got to talk about submission. Okay? And then it'll lead to service. That's the action. How do we meet those needs that our spouses have willingly? So if we can get these things right, what we believe that we're one, if we can look at our hearts and our attitudes about humility and honoring each other, then serving is the natural overflow of that. Now, um, John talked about last week that God uses marriages and marriage relationships to make us look a little bit more like Jesus every day. I believe that. I don't just believe it. I've seen it in my life. I've experienced it. I've been married now for, in August, it'll be 30 years. So a little over 29 years. And it's been the happiest 27 years of Janelle's life. (laughs) Uh, So there's been some stuff that we've had to learn and struggle through. But I tell you what, it has been the tool that God has used most in my life to 
like John and Debbie talked about those polishing rocks, to knock the rough edges off, to smooth me, to shine me up. Now, I still got a lot of work to do. And since Janelle's not here, I won't talk about her. But, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in our lives. But this is a wonderful thing that God has done in bringing two people and helping us to know what being more and more like Jesus is like. And it says this again in Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn, uh, firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So when it comes to God's will, you know, a lot of people, what's God's will for my life? Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? All these, where should I go to school? Who should I marry? All these types of things. You can't necessarily turn to a Bible pay, you know, book or a chapter or verse and find out the specific answer for those things. Now, he'll guide us and lead us as we trust him and walk in him. We have lots of freedom in those decisions along the guardrails of things that he lays out for us. But when it comes to something, I can tell you, I know exactly what God's will is for you. It is to make you more like Jesus Christ. No doubt about it. That's God's number one desire. His will, his intention for your life is for you to become more like Christ. And if we do that, look, these are two things that will happen. John 15, 12 through 13 tells us, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. When you are becoming more like Jesus and you begin to love one another just as he loved us, you will see what it means to lay down your life because that's how we know that God loves us. He laid down his life for us. He put our needs first. He was sacrificial in his love for us. And then also Jesus told his disciples that even the son of man came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that was a completely foreign concept to them because the disciples were waiting for a king to come, to rule and to reign and to extend his power on earth and to kick out the Romans. They wanted him to be served, to make everyone subservient to him. And yet Jesus says, oh, you're getting this backwards. I didn't come just to be served and be on a power trip and put myself first. I came to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. So do you see that? If you are becoming more like Jesus, you're entering into God's will for you. Two things will happen, and that's God's will for you. One, you will love sacrificially, and two, you will serve. Do y'all believe that? Yes. Now, when I got married, look, having children is an incredible gift. And I think when I... So I have four boys. When I had children, you know what it did? It taught me about God's unconditional love in a way I never understood. You look at this little baby, and it hadn't done anything but just cry and need to be changed, need to be fed. Your whole sleep schedule, everything revolves around it, but you don't bat an eye to do any of that. You lay down your life for that child. Having children taught me sacrificial love. Getting married... You know what? The great, there's many wonderful gifts about getting married. But one of the greatest things it did was taught me how selfish I was. See, I didn't think I was that selfish. I thought I was a good guy. But when you get married and you put that person in your life and you begin to have conflict and you want your own way, it just reveals that desire that all of us have to want our own way. And see, marriage is one of the things that God uses to say, that desire within you, that sin, to have your own way, I'm going to root it out. You're going to learn to put the other person first. So I'm so thankful for marriage. 
Now, let's look at this. Point B, here's that belief, that thing that we need to believe and know to help us to experience this. To put each other first, we need to understand oneness as opposed to two-ness. Now, I don't even know if two-ness is a word. I think I just made it up. But we need to understand oneness as opposed to two-ness. You know, you have to believe that you're one. And this is one of the first things that the Bible tells us. In Genesis chapter 2, when God makes a woman, after he made Adam and all of creation, said everything's good except for one thing, man's alone. He doesn't need to be alone. And then he made woman out of man. Now, let me just say this. That does not mean that women only exist to fulfill men. That's not it. They have a whole purpose and, a, and just an incredible specialness that God does it in them and through them. But what he did is he took two people and he united them. And when Adam saw Eve, he busted out into song. That's how good it was. And he said, oh, man, this, you are bone in my bone, flesh in my flesh. We're one. This is why we'll... Uh, Son will leave his parents and they'll unite to become one. It was so good. And he saw himself as one with her. Now, Paul picks that back up in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And he says this, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united, what? Into one. This is a great mystery. How can God take two things that are so different? And if you've been in a marriage relationship, men and women are different. And you put them together and they become one. He says this is a great ministry. But it's also an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. See, oneness is not some thing that... It's a part of life. It's a way God has, has wired it, that we would be one with our spouse, and it would help us to understand how we are one with Christ. Now, let, let's look at this. I have a point here. You are one with your spouse. I want you to understand that. When you are one, you are actually joined to your spouse. You are caring for yourself. There's no longer two, me and her, or her and him. You become one. Something new comes into being. Just like when you become a Christian, the old is gone. That's just you and your flesh. The new has come. That's the spirit of God in you. You become a totally new being, something that never existed before. When you get married, the old you, just you, is gone, and the new you together with your spouse as one comes into being. That's what God does. Now, he, he said that, that he joins you together. In 1 Corinthians 7, this isn't in your outline, but he even talks, it goes so far as even to authority over your body, that your, the body of the husband doesn't even belong to you, it belongs to your wife. And the body of your wife doesn't just belong to her, it belongs to you. It goes to every aspect of who we are. We don't see ourselves as just me with her, we're one. Everything about us is united. Wouldn't that change your perspective of your spouse if you understood we're one? How many times do you have interactions with your spouse where you don't see yourself as one, you see them as them? You know, us and them, the opposition, the one that we have to overcome to get our way. But see, marriage is not about getting your way, 
by yourself. It's about getting your way as one, a new person, together. And that's what God does. When he looks at you, he doesn't just see Shane and Janelle. He sees Chanel. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) He sees us together as one. Okay? Now, listen to what it says in Ephesians 5, 8, 29, just to give more context to this. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for who? Himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. See, if you have oneness, you don't begin to see the other person as someone who's against you or an obstacle that you have to overcome. You see it as yourself. And if you look at your life, you have no trouble prioritizing the things that you want to do or the things that you need to do. But you need to realize that it's not just you anymore. It's y'all as one. And you need to prioritize those things. And again, it's also reflective, like he said, this is a mystery because it's also reflective of how Christ and the church are one, our relationship with him. See, when we actually see our spouse as one, if they're a believer, it's not just we see them as ourselves, but we also recognize Christ in them because we're in Christ. See, it's no longer I'm just doing it for my wife or having a better understanding of united with my wife, doing it for us as one. I'm also doing it for Christ in her. Do do y'all believe that? Listen to these verses. Jesus told the disciples, anyone who receives you receives me. He he was saying there's oneness in me. When I send you out and now you're on united in my purposes and in my power in my life, when you go out and you do that, when they receive you, they're actually receiving me because I'm in you. Jesus said this too. He gave this thing at the end. He says, there'll be uh, people in prison and they're naked and thing and, and you'll have gone to visit them and he tells a story and the king will, and they'll say, but we never went to jail. And you, when were you naked? When were you in prison? And when did we do these things to you? And he says, the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for who? To me. See, sometimes we just even look at the person we're doing it to. And if we really have the eyes of oneness, we'll see it's even deeper than that. I'm not just doing it for the benefit of me. I'm not just doing it for the benefit of them. I'm actually doing it as a service of worship to God. That would change your perspective on marriage, wouldn't it? It's not just about me getting my needs. But it's about me seeing my spouse just as important as one. It's not just my wants and her wants. It's the wants that we have. And they're equally important to me, even though they might be different. Now, I kind of thought about this difference between oneness and twoness. I want to kind of help you to understand this. It's like this pair of scissors. This pair of scissors. If they weren't together, if they were not one, you basically just had two knives. And And they're unique because there's different edges on each side. But they're similar. And that's like us. We're similar, but you were diverse and we're unique. But when God makes scissors, they're not two knives. They're one. And they have a common purpose. See, when you're just together and just two-ness, you're just together. It's about location. It's just about do we have the same pursuits? Is it the same actions? And as long as we're together, it looks like we're one. 
but that's not the case. When you're one, you're united in spirit, in purpose, in identity. You're something new. And you're a unit, a team. You're not just two things. It's one thing. You know, if we're together, it's just a collection of individuals in two-ness. But when you're one, it's a unit, it's a team, and you can accomplish more things together. It's like these scissors. When they come together, they actually do what they're intended to do. Not just hanging like that and poking you and doing the wrong things. They're indispensable when you see yourself as one. It's a part of who you are. But if you just see yourself as together in Tunis, that other person is really disposable because there comes a time where it's like, well, you're not going the direction I want. You're not on the same purpose. You're not united with me. So we were together, but now I don't need you because I'm going this way. Or we can understand being oneness like from now on, the two have become one forever, never to be broken from now on. But if you still have this idea of two-ness, it's until otherwise. And we can do this as long as we're good, but if something else comes on, otherwise I'll go my own way. See, we have to change the way we think about it. All right, let's look at point B or point C. To put each other first, we need to have the right attitude about submitting to each other. Submitting to each other. Okay, now, this is an attitude. Now, this is a tough word. I, when I'm doing marriages and stuff like that and we have verses, sometimes I'll have the bride come up to me and go, well, we want some verses in our wedding, but I don't want the one about submission in it. No, I don't want that one. Find that, find me in one about Ruth or something else, but don't put that word submission in there. And now what I want you to understand is submission is not just that responsibility of the wife. It is the responsibility of every Christian to one another, not just to your husband, husbands and wives. We are supposed to submit to one another. And then, so if you read it in the Greek, it says submit to one another. And then underneath it, it's like husbands, wives unto your husbands. It just takes the idea and plays it. And it goes down even further and it explains it even more. And husbands to your wives by loving them as Christ loved the church. See, submit comes from that word. Uh, it's a Latin uh, word, sub, meaning under, and mit, to put or to place. And you, what you do when you submit is you put yourself under someone. You put yourself under. You don't Pull someone down to put yourself over. And that's unfortunately what's happened in marriage when we have this idea of submission. It becomes about the pecking order. And when I was in seminary and we talked about that and everything, it was always about pecking order. Who's the head? Now, I'm not saying there's not headship and things like that. But we miss the whole point when we put the emphasis on who's in control. Because it's not about being in control. It's about serving one another. That's why Jesus said that if you're going to be like me, you will serve others because it's not about being the greatest. It's about becoming the least and the servant of all, and especially in our marriage relationship. So we're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We do it out of reverence for him and because of what he's done for us, because guess what? He submitted himself to us. You know that? 
Submission frees us from that terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. Gosh. And how many of you know you so want your own way, but if you got your own way, it would destroy you all the time. You know a child, if he gets everything or she gets everything she wants, what we call that person? Spoiled. Because no one should get what they want all the time. And when we submit to one another, it frees us from that. And it's not based on a series of authoritative relationships, but an inner attitude of mutual submission. You know, I, when I was like seven, when I was in seminary, I went to this class one time about counseling, about marriage, and they were talking about submission. And the, the, pastor, or the teacher, professor got up there and said, now look, this is a very controversial subject and it's very powerful and it's kind of like this thing of like when you see a a, uh, an axe in one of those glass cases that says break only in emergency he's like that's this submission verse you don't just pull it out at any time that's not even the like you know only when it gets really bad then you break the glass and pull it out and go I'm in charge That's not how it works. You don't do that. It's about continually putting the other need person first. And so it's an attitude. And there is no submission without humility. This is the attitude. Listen to what it says in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Don't be selfish. Don't put yourself first, wanting your own way all the time. Don't try and press others. Go, me, me, me. But be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest. But take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He humbled himself in obedience to God. See, if you're going to submit, there's a humility. There's a recognizing of your role of limiting yourself. It's the opposite of pride. But it's not just about lowering yourself. It's also about, you know, like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. That's exactly what happens in a submissive relationship. We're humbling ourselves, but at the same time, we're honoring our other spouse. We're elevating them. Don't just do one. You got to do both. And so let's look at honor. It says there's no submission without honor. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight. Does that sound like a burden? Oh, I have to put them first. No, take delight in honoring, in affirming, in recognizing who they are, their giftedness, what they bring to your life. You cherish them. You don't endure in person, you know, just, oh, I got to put up with you. You honor them. It changes your attitude towards them. If you want to see submission where we're putting the other person first, it takes humility and honoring. If we do that, we'll reject the world's philosophy and expo- of expose and exploit. You know, because that's really what the world is. I got to win. I got to get my way. I want to win in sports. I want to win in work. I want to win in war. And in order, in order to do that, I have to see you as an opponent and I have to look at you and I have to find out where's your weakness so I can exploit it to get what? What I want. And that's the exact opposite of how God made relationships. Because if you go into your relationships trying to expose so you can exploit to get what you want, 
you're destroying your marriage. God says, reject, expose, and exploit to win. Instead, accept my way of honoring and serving. Listen, Mark 10, I read to you the last part about where he said the Son of Man came to not be served, but to serve. Listen to what it said before that. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials, flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. See, this is what God wants for us. Not to be sitting there going, well, I'm in charge. I'm... No, it's about humility and about honoring. And if we do that, then our attitude changes towards the person and we willingly submit. Now, this is real important. There was a guy named Dr. John Gottman and his wife, uh, I think it's Suzanne, no, Julie, Julie Gottman. And around 1975, he tried to start figuring out why some people stayed married and why some people got divorced. And so he looked scientifically, did research data. They built the Love Lab in Seattle, Washington. And they started finding out all these things. And they basically found out that there are Lots of reasons why some people got divorced and some people got married. And they could actually predict within 90% rate of whether a marriage would last or end in divorce. And they said it came down to what the four horsemen, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There are four horsemen in marriage that if you see these things, it's doom and destruction for a marriage. And they were criticism, the attitude of criticism, being critical. And that led to contempt See, criticism, critical, just, oh, and it moves from just what you do to who you are. They begin to criticize you who you are. And then it leads to contempt, where you begin to criticize someone, you begin to think you're better than they are. And they said when that contempt happened, it was the death blow to marriage. Because then that would lead to defensiveness. Instead of really dealing with the issue because the person's attacking you, you feel like you have to defend yourself. And now you're no longer talking about the issue. You're talking about your own value. And if you're continually going at it like this, eventually you move from being defensive to just stonewalling. You can't even respond to the person. It's so painful anymore. And if you do that, then the marriage and relationship is over. But contempt is really what leads to that. That's that pride. That's about getting my way. That's about the opposite of submissing, being submissive, saying, I value you. I'm elevating you. I'm affirming your worth and your value in this relationship. You matter to me. Everything about you matters. What you want, that's important to me. Because why? Because we're one. If we have that right attitude, guess what? We'll serve. D, to put each other first, we need to willingly serve each other. Will y'all say that with me out loud? To put each other first, we need to willingly serve each other. Willingly. What a joy, what a privilege to honor your spouse, to keep them first. Because you're really not just doing it for them, you're doing it for you. Because you're one, and you're doing it for Christ. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a form of worship. But it will show itself in service. Because it's not just enough to know something. If you have the right attitude, it will change what you do. You will act differently. You will not just know they have a need. You will begin to meet a need. Listen to what it says in Galatians 5.13. 
For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinfulness. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Again, what's the focus of that verse? Is it getting what I want? No. It's about having freedom, but valuing the other person, loving, sacrificial, putting that into action and meeting their needs. And you want to do that. Now, I know we're talking about marriage, but I want you to know this is no different than any other relationship. All relationships require this sacrificial love and service. This idea of realizing that we're connected somehow. And that I need to humble myself and honor the other person. So that then I can begin to be free of just getting what I want. To begin to be free to serve the other person. Now, I, I, again, I want to help you to see this, the difference between just serving and being a servant. Because when you're married... Or when you're a Christian, you don't just serve, you are a servant. And see, if we just have this idea of serving, it's really just about an action. Whereas if we're a servant, it's about a posture. If we're serving, it's just about, well, maybe I might do this. If I can, if I have time, if I feel like it. If there's something in it for me that I can use later on down the road to get what I want, I might do it. I have to factor all that in. But see, a servant forfeits all of those rules and rights. It's a posture that you have at all times to meet the needs of the other person. It's continual. And really, it's nothing more than the reflection and the overflow of Christ's life within you, who is a servant. That's how he lives. Sometimes you might go, I just don't know what I should do. How do I serve? Well, you can always ask. You can always ask, what can I do? But sometimes you might not want to. And I just want you to have this life application in your pocket. If you don't know what to do, you can always apply what? The golden rule. What would you like done to you? Do it to them. It's not that complicated. We make it very hard. We overcomplicate it. Relationships are really kind of simple. They're not, not always easy. But if you serve that way, you'll see a difference. Now, can I leave you with a story? Because when I think of this type of life, even though it's not complicated, it's hard. But how many of you know who Sandra Day O'Connor is? Sandra Day O'Connor is the first female Supreme Court justice. At one, at, when she was serving, there were many times where they would do uh, polls of most powerful women in the world. Sandra Day O'Connor would be at the top, one of the most powerful women in the world. She grew up very humble. She grew up on a ranch. She'd have to sometimes ride 32 miles on a bus just to get to school. There was no running water. There was no electricity. All there was was plenty of work on this cattle ranch. That's the kind of life that she came from. Went to Stanford. Did really well, became a lawyer, went through that, met her husband at Stanford, who was also a very accomplished lawyer. As she continued to progress, she got appointed Supreme Court Justice. That's the pinnacle. That's a lifetime appointment. That's one of the most powerful people in the whole world, definitely in the United States. And her husband, 
was a very accomplished lawyer and he surrendered. He didn't look at what she was doing and see how it stopped him from doing what he wanted to do. He saw them as one. He gave up his practice. He went to Washington, D.C., lived there. He had an incredible job, but because of her role and her rank, there were a lot of times he couldn't serve on cases. So he's just like, it's just better. He gave up. He stepped back for them and for her. Well, in 2006, well, 2005, they began to notice he was having some cognitive problems and was diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's. And she retired for the Supreme Court. Not when she felt like she was at her end. There were still many things to do in the country that she thought was important. But she looked at her husband and said, it's the right thing to do. He gave up so much for me, I need to give up for him. So for six months, she retired and moved back home and stayed with her husband. But in six months, it got so bad, he could no longer stay at home. And they had to put her into a home. So she stepped down from this role in six months. Then she had nothing to do. And then when her husband didn't even recognize her, when she went to the home to see him, after he moved into the home, it wasn't very long before he found a girlfriend because he didn't remember. He didn't know. And you know what Sandra Day O'Connor did? She would go visit her husband, John, and his girlfriend, Kay. And they would sit on the porch swing and he would be holding Kay's hand and she would be holding John's hand on the other side. And she took care of him until he died. Always visited. Now, it was it easy? No. Did she have sometimes some doubts? Was this the right thing to do? He doesn't even remember me anymore. I'm, I'm not even at home. I can't even actually give care for him. But it was the right thing to do. Because she saw herself as one with John. And it wasn't about her. It was about honoring him and the commitments that they made. And she served him. I don't know about you, but that challenges me. I want to be that kind of husband. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your word. Thank you for this truth. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand that you made us one. And that it's not about getting our own way. But if we're going to thrive in marriage, if that knot's going to be tightened, we need to learn to put the other person first by honoring them, acknowledging them who they are, humbling ourselves and then freely, willingly serving them. And if we do that, we won't drift apart. We won't just be together. We just won't be two people have the same name. We will be one person, united. God, would you do that for our good and for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.